Why are they so bereft after the cross? Well, if they're only reading Jeremiah instead of Jeremiah in concert with Isaiah 53, you could say New Covenant is great. They wouldn't be thinking about the cross. They'd just be thinking about the next step in Jeremiah, which is Zion, security, everything turning out right. The glory without the suffering. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. And that's what Jesus said. This is, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's bringing the Isaiah 53. They really weren't quite prepared. If I read Luke 24, right, Jesus having to explain to them, no, I had to suffer, I had to die. Put the whole Old Testament together and you'll see it. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie. I'm so glad you have joined me today for Help Me Teach the Bible. This is the podcast for people who love God's Word, and we come to God's Word with a desire to hear God speak to us through His Word, to experience Him change us through His Word. But we also come to it seeking to understand and own it in such a way that we might be able to teach it to others. And on this episode of Help Me Teach the Bible, I'm talking to Dr. Paul House in his office at Beeson Divinity School. Dr. House, thank you so much for being willing to help us teach the Bible. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Dr. House teaches Old Testament theology, which he just came from teaching class this morning, uh, and Hebrew at Beeson Divinity School. But you've taught many other places, Taylor University, Uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry, Wheaton College. So clearly you know a little bit about teaching the Bible. It's been hard to hold a job, but yes, I've I've taught those different places. (laughs) You're also the author of several books, uh, The Unity of the Twelve, Old Testament Survey, Old Testament Theology, You wrote Lamentations in the Word Biblical Commentary series, and then most recently Bonhoeffer's Seminary Vision. You've been a pastor of numerous churches, and we're so grateful that Crossway is the sponsor of this podcast, and you've been a member of the Translation Oversight Committee for the English Standard Version of the Bible, an enormous task. It was, but a lot of fun to do, and I learned a lot. Did you? Tell me something you learned from that. Well, I learned a great deal about the difficulties of translation from Hebrew to English and Greek to English. Things like when you translate and it's the same word four times in the same book, English tends to want a synonym, but we need to have the repetition and so forth. Uh, I just remember Jim Packer giving us the whole exposition of what righteousness in the New Testament meant. And I also learned about human nature as we tried to get all this work done. <laughs> that sounds like it has some stories behind it. <laughs> it does. I, I, I'm the youngest member of the committee. I, I've always threatened to tell the story as I wish when they're gone. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a friend of mine who worked in the publishing industry for years, and he would always say that he was working on a book called Phonies I Have Known, and he would say, for a small price, I'll keep you out of it. There you go. <laughs> Well, we're talking today about the book of Jeremiah. This is a big book, uh, one of the biggest of the Old Testament prophets, and we probably can't expect that we're going to hand to people in our conversation everything they need to be equipped to teach this book. But we hope to give them a few things to grab hold of and hang on to as they seek to prepare themselves to teach this. So why don't we start? Would you just tell us why? Would we want to teach the book of Jeremiah? I mean, oftentimes uh, we lead a small group or a class and people have 
current, interesting kind of topics maybe they want us to teach about. Maybe they say, well, we really want something practical. Uh, give us a New Testament epistle that'll tell us what to do. So can you make a case for us why in this day and time would we want to pick up a book like Jeremiah and teach it? Well, sure. Don't worry. Jeremiah is frankly willing to tell you what to do if that's what you want. Um, Jeremiah is 5.2% of the Bible. I learned that in the translation committee. So first of all, if we want to know 5% of the Bible, we're going to have to take a look at Jeremiah. Uh, Second is most famous for being uh, the book who speaks of the New Covenant and the only book of the Old Testament speaks the New Covenant, calls other uh, the other prophets talk about the covenant as everlasting covenant and covenant of peace, all the same thing, but he's the one who terms it new covenant. Uh, he has a great struggle in his own faith with God. That's evident in the book and comes out whole the other side. He's a person who lives under great persecution and suffering. He ministers to people uh, whose culture is collapsing around them and who are going to be refugees. He himself and his friend Baruch are refugees uh, who are ministering to others. So there's a lot of contemporary uh, correlation between Jeremiah and today's world. Sounds like it. Are there some particular challenges to teaching? For even first understanding for ourselves and then teaching the book of Jeremiah that we should be aware of? Yeah, the first thing is it's 5.2% of the Bible. It's very long. And if you're wanting to do a full book study, you're either going to have to do something very survey-oriented or just pick a section of the book, do that, come back to it later. Or if you're going to you know, study it yourself, you might want to do it in pieces. So that's one of the challenges. Another challenge is it's not in chronological order. We like chronology it's, in our modern Western mindset, don't we? Well, yes, and they, and they do in the Old Testament too. But again, Jeremiah and Baruch are refugees. This reads like refugee literature because that's what it is, put together by people who are driven from their homes who then put it together. So it's, it's, it's a bit more like uh, what we think of Holocaust writers or uh, some of the writers today who are in exile from their homes from Syria or wherever who are trying to, to write. So it's not going to be as neat and orderly as First and Second Kings or as neat and orderly as Ezekiel, which is very sequential. Uh, it's going to be read more thematically and from the understanding that you know the history. So you, you need to get oriented a bit to a few things. How do things. we do that? Is there particular sections of the scriptures or some outside resource we can use to get oriented to the history? I think so. I mean, the nice thing about the book of Jeremiah is chapter 1 is a true introduction to the book. If you will get a hold of things there, you're going to be well served as you go forward. So the first three verses are going to set the historical scene for you. And everyone mentioned there is in First and Second Kings. If you have a good study Bible that lays out the dates of these kings, and if you are willing to, uh, say, get Second Kings chapters 21 to 25 in front of you so that you can correlate it with Jeremiah, you'll be able to track. And what you'll see is he's in the time period of the last good king of Judah, that's Josiah, who is described very in detail in Second Kings 22 and 23 down to the loss of the kingdom, the destruction of Jerusalem, which is in Second Kings 25. And also that's how Jeremiah's book ends. So this is his ministry. So you can see it's from this last 
revival period down to we lost it all. Those are the first three verses. So you get you get the historical situation in the first three verses. Verses 4 to 16, you get the thematic uh, introduction to the book. What are the great themes? Uh, sin, how the people sin against God and covenant, covenant breaking. Judgment that is coming in, inevitably as God disciplines his people. But then also renewal after the judgment. So the great themes of prophetic literature are found in verses 4 to 16, and you're reminded of these. And then verses 17 to 19, to close out the chapter, who are the enemies? Who are the people who are going to oppose him? And it's nearly everyone, the kings, the people of the land, the nations, they're all going to fight against him, but God is with him to deliver him. So we know his ministry's going to proceed as God wishes, but that he's going to have a lot to endure and a lot of opposition. So those three things set up the book for us. Chapter one's a real introduction, the historical setting, the thematic setting, and then the enemies, the characters. So once we get that down, I just kind of look a little bit, correlate it with Second Kings 22 to 25, you'll be, you'll be oriented into what you're going to find in the book. That's very helpful. Okay, so you said it's 5.2% of the Bible, and we're probably not going to teach an exhaustive study every chapter let's say we had eight ten twelve weeks would we would we put together huge chunks or would we pick some representative chapters help us with how we might organize what we're going to cover over a limited number of weeks what would right. you suggest if, if i had one one day to teach it one day okay i would do the following what i just did chapter one is a real introduction Chapter 52, the last chapter, is a real conclusion. That is, the people do lose Jerusalem. They go into exile, and there are exiles after the temple's destroyed and that sort of thing. So all seems lost. So we have real introduction. We have real conclusion. Chapters 2 to 29 focus on the sin that brings the judgment. They really do. It's, it's what happens prior. So what are the sins? What are the failures? that lead to the judgment. Interestingly enough, chapters 30 to 33 are the renewal section. It's really the only prophetic book that puts the renewal in the middle as if it's we got to brace ourselves before we go do the, the we judgment. Talk about the judgment. Yeah. And then chapters 34 to 51 are all about judgment, how it comes to Judah, how it comes to other nations, how Jeremiah gets thrown into being a refugee and an exile himself to minister to these people. So you got these big blocks of the book that actually follow the prophetic themes. Sin, chapter 2 to 29, renewal, 30 to 33, judgment, 34, 51. So if you were doing it in one talk, I would, would do you, those five themes. But would you probably go, you know, beginning, sin, maybe skip to judgment, and I, then do hope? <laughs> I would introduce the whole book by looking at chapter one the way I did. Yeah. Which is here's the historical summary, here's the thematic summary, here's what he here's what Jeremiah's gonna be up against. First theme, sin, there it is. Third theme, renewal. Yeah, oh, okay. Second theme, uh, judgment, conclusion. What that would do is orient people to the book of Jeremiah, but it also orients them to prophetic literature. Prophetic literature always has these themes. So if you're reading in, in any prophetic book and you think, well, I'm, what's going on here? It's going to be one of those great themes. You're encouraging me because in my book on the prophets, 
I said the theme of all the prophets is sin, judgment, and hope. So I that's feel, it. That's I feel it. like I didn't miss it. Thank you. That, that's right. And then, yes, I, I would pick out a great passage on sin and conviction like, I, like Jeremiah 7. Then I would pick up uh, chapter 31 for the renewal through the new covenant. And probably for the judgment, I, I would do chapter 39 where Jerusalem falls. And it's told by people who experienced it. So it's it's not an abstract thing when you read it. It brings human suffering because of their sins to our mind and it, to reality. Not as some abstract thing, judgment's out there, but these people were taken over and hauled away and killed and so forth. Very vivid. Yeah, scenes. vivid's right. Yeah. So in this book, we hear mostly from the prophet Jeremiah, but it also traces the rule of several kings, as you mentioned, Josiah um, and and several others. Would you help us understand the unique relationship for Old Testament Israel between kings and prophets? I'll try. In the Bible, we see that. That's right. But it, it was an ancient Near Eastern phenomenon. It was, so that wasn't just in Israel? No. The Assyrian kings listened to prophets and received messages from them. We have, you know, archaeologists have discovered these, and they've been translated in English, this sort of thing. So every ancient king would real—they were all theists, mainly polytheists. They all believed in God. They didn't—none of them were atheists. Most of them believe in lots of gods. And so what they would need to hear, they all believed in the supernatural. And so what they wanted is some message from beyond uh, where we live. So they all believed that prophets had that ability. They also knew there were phony prophets than people who were on the make for the money. But they also knew that there were people who could actually be in contact with the supernatural who could help them know what to do. So the king of Assyria had them. If you've read the book of Daniel, the king of Babylon had them. But what the Bible's claiming is these prophets are actually speaking for the creator, the living God, not for some other God. And that has some implications for the kings in terms of their responsibility to listen. Right. And whether or not they're going to listen to things they don't want to hear, such as Ahab and Jehoshaphat heard from this prophet Micaiah, if you go up, you will lose. Jeremiah had to tell his people, God says surrender to Babylon if you want the city to survive. It's not very patriotic, is it? (laughs) But this is what God says. We have sinned, and now is the time for us to surrender if we want to survive. Zedekiah, who was king right before the city fell, he, he believed Jeremiah was right, but he would not act on that. So you mentioned uh, reading some in first, especially second Kings, will help us get a sense of the historical what's going on that we need to understand this book. Do we also need to spend some time in the maps to understand some of what of the geographical setting? Because one thing about Jeremiah, it is full of geography, of countries. And uh, so do we need to spend time in the maps? Well, I do, because if, you, if you're teaching a Bible study and you're reading along, someone's going to inevitably ask you, where's that place? And so... I know I'm not here to sell Crossway products necessarily, but the ESV Study Bible, and there are other good study Bibles that do this now, because of computer graphics and all, now in the notes we can just show you the map that's right there. And I did the study notes for the ESV in, in Jeremiah, so when I came upon a place, I always wanted to say it's four miles north of Jerusalem or it's near this place. 
So often the geography is very helpful to us to know how close an enemy army is, to know how far someone had to go, how difficult the task was, and so forth. And especially, you know, Egypt and Babylon are going to be very significant in this book. To ha- so have a sense of where they are and Israel stuck right in between them. It is. significant. And to think about why it matters to these people, Babylon wants to do business with Egypt. Babylon's northeast, uh, Egypt's southwest, Israel's in between. They have all the roads between. There's fertile ground there. And so it, it, it's an economic and political battleground in Jeremiah's lifetime. Talk to us about what the social situation was like in uh, Judah in the days of Jeremiah. What was life like living in Judah? It's an agricultural economy. It's affected also, the economy is affected by really toll roads like people in Chicago would understand. You had to pay to come between Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. And then across the desert, uh, the luxury trade was coming across oases and things into Judah. They were near the great shipping center of Tyre, which is northwest on the coast of near Israel. So there's a lot of economic factors going on. According to Jeremiah, there was a lot of injustice. There was a lot of low wages. There was a lot of land grabbing. And there was a lot of keeping people in bond servitude, that is, into slavery. That is, you know, you, you, you owe us this much money. You must work this long to pay off your bond. Israelites enslaving their sure. brother Israelites? Yes, yeah. which is... Um, Chapter 35 and 6 talk about that, yeah. So that's the social scene. What's the spiritual scene like in Jeremiah's day? Jeremiah shows us it was a very diverse scene. There would have been people like him and his friend Baruch who were committed followers of the living God in the way that Moses had drawn it up and given to people. There would have been people who worshipped on the very opposite end. Jeremiah talks about people worshipping different gods, probably the gods of Egypt, on the rooftop because Egypt worshipped the astral deities, the deities of the sky, stars and such. These are Israelites, but they're worshipping Egyptian gods? Yes, because they would not have distinguished between having Egypt as an ally that keeps you safe from Babylon and their gods. So to take on Egypt as an ally is to take on their gods. We need to understand that because we're used to taking on allies without any kind of religion, we think, without any kind of religious implications. They would have been very obvious in the ancient world because Israel had a god. His name was Yahweh. Egypt had lots of other gods. Moab had a god. So if you ask them for help, you're asking for help from their gods. So the Israelites would worship the Egyptian gods. Some of them worshipped... Baal, the god of fertility, makes sense in a farming culture to give worship to whoever it is that makes it rain and makes crops grow. Um, Jeremiah said Yahweh did that. The Lord God did that. Uh, Other people say Baal did that, a different god altogether. So there were some who would worship many gods, whichever one they needed for whatever situation they found themselves in. Others tried to mix some of that religion in with the worship of the living God. So you, you do things like, I'm going to worship the living God, but I'm going to treat him as if he has a consort, a wife. So I'll worship her as well. I'm going to bring in several 
aspects of worship of other gods into the worship of the living God, like images. And when God said no images of him or any other God, we're going to have those instead because people are used to them and so forth. So it, it really would make sense to, to people today, if you really look at our religious scene, you'll see a lot of the same things. In our culture, people worshiping different gods, some people worshiping more than one, some people worshiping who we would call God with aspects of Islam or Hinduism or something in it. So it, it's a whole lot like our scene. Yeah, help us with that a little bit more. Um, when you're teaching this, um, how do you help modern people you're teaching, maybe they look at this whole thing of idolatry and worshiping other gods and their syncretism, and that seems like something ancient and foreign and that we're far too sophisticated for that. Uh, So how how do you, when you teach it, help people, in a sense, see themselves in this scene? I first encountered polytheism that believed in many gods and that the gods had specific tasks to carry out and lived in particular geographical regions when I went to Singapore. And so you would, you would come out of a, a big high-rise building, a technologically advanced city, and you would see people in their, in their works, in their suits, you know, their expensive suit, getting their palm read by somebody. And you'd go, you would go to the housing subdivision where you live, and you'd see food set out to the gods. And so the, the idea of many gods and worshiping the way ancient times described them still goes on today whether or not we're technologically advanced or not. So first of all, I'd say lots of places in the world where, no, these things are done side by side. Then I say to them, well, and culturally speaking, uh, every church has to use the best of culture to exist. So when I go to church, we tend to speak English. That's because most of us speak English. We sing songs in a certain way kind of a soft pop, soft rock, or a, or a hymn because of the past and the culture. But at what point do attitudes of the culture impinge on biblical teaching? At what point does living life by more money, more numbers, more power is the way we ought to do it? When does that impinge on Christianity? Ouch. So, <laughs> so we start having them think it through, and when are we unconsciously being affected by Americanism? and industrialism, and so forth, and we didn't even know it. Well, you can get a pretty good discussion when you try to help people see um, when would music become too worldly, too much of the world and not useful to us, Uh, and when does our belief system get messed up by culture that is not Christian, and how do we recognize it? You get a pretty good discussion. It may not all be accurate, but I get they get your point pretty quickly. You mentioned earlier that if we want to get a sense of the theme of the whole book, that we really focus on Jeremiah chapter 1. And Jeremiah one ten kind of summarizes Jeremiah's message throughout his 40 years of prophetical ministry. And he, he uses six key words that are repeated throughout the book, pluck up. Mm-hmm. Break down, destroy, overthrow, build, plant. Would you talk with us a little bit about what makes those words and those visual images so significant in the book of Jeremiah? Yeah, these, the, the prophets are by and large great imaginative writers and poets and thinkers. Jeremiah is a bit more pedestrian than Ezekiel, but he's awfully good. 
he has these basic images like to tear down is really it's this preach sin. You're going to have to tear down their household of sin and of pride and of denial. Break it down. And that's what his word does, brick by brick, breaks it down. Pluck up, you know, you, you pull weeds out of a garden. That's what you're doing. You're trying to tend the ground. Destroy, judgment is coming. They need to know that. They need to know what's going to flash through the, the town like Berlin in 1945. The city's coming down. But to build and to plant means it's not the end. The day's coming where after, after all the rubble, after all the fire, after everything, God's going to replant the people in the land. He's going to unite them under uh, David's descendant. He's going to give them a final new covenant. And the future in, in Zion is bright. Yeah, these images are, are real and they're well known to their people. So these images, and not just images, really direct promises of restoration. Uh, when we get to that section in the book of Jeremiah, it's beautiful and it's vast and it brings up a big challenge of teaching prophetic literature because we know that the people were teaching immediately, they're going to raise their hands and say, well, is that something that happened in the past when the people came back? Or is that something that's going to happen in the future? Uh, is this something that happened when Christ came? Would you just talk to us a little bit as teachers how to best equip those we're teaching to understand the nature of those kind of prophetic promises? Yeah, I think all the prophets... Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they tell the following story, and you'll find it in Jeremiah 30 to 33, that renewal section. The story goes like this. By Jeremiah's time, Israel, the ten tribes that split from Judah and Benjamin when Solomon died, had already begun and gone into exile in five or six instances over several years. Some were still in the land, but lots of them were outside. Judah was about to go into exile. So what does the future hold? Jeremiah looks beyond that time and says, the day will come, according to chapter 31, but it's also in chapter 30. The day will come when God will bring the people back and like plants, I think like like good grass or in the south like kudzu, <laughs> They're going to grow and repopulate the land. The land will be filled with Abraham's descendants again. That being so, they will unite under David's leadership, David being the symbolic king and his descendants all being kings. And from him comes uh, Jesus. They will unite around that person in a new covenant that will lead them to eventually living in a secure place where they will never be at danger again. That's chapters 30 and 31. That's the story all the prophets tell. By New Testament times, the land was full of Abraham's descendants again. Jesus didn't have to go through vast stretches and not find any people. The land was filled with Abraham's descendants. Jesus was the Messiah. On the night before he died, he brings only Jews, 12 of them, together. They're united around him, his disciples. He institutes the new covenant in his blood. 
and he dies is raised from the dead he sent them out to bless the nations but all the promises that, that Jeremiah foresaw leading up to Christ and his work are fulfilled doesn't mean they won't ever pattern again like there would never be any Jews in Israel again and there'll be whatever but the, the idea was we don't have to look for a further or a future filling of the land coming of the Christ sending out of the disciples what we are awaiting is what Isaiah calls new heavens new earth Jeremiah 31 shows as Zion a city that's impregnable safe and never ending most Christians call that heaven so that's what we look for. What do we do in, in between time? We do the work God's given us to do. Would it be accurate, or help me to say this better, Dr. House, would it be accurate to say that when we look at these promises of restoration that we read in Jeremiah and so many of the other prophets, that there is a sense in which there is a partial fulfillment as the descendants of Abraham, as you called them, come back to the physical land of Judah, then there is a greater fulfillment in Christ when he comes and he says this new covenant, I'm, I'm establishing It's all part it of the same story. It. I yeah. wouldn't separate them. It's all part of the them. same yeah. story because he's telling this story in chapters 30 to 31, just we're leaving the land now. We will we, we'll be populated again. The Messiah will come to us. He will make a new covenant, and he will take his design. That's, that's the story. And I think in the New Testament, say that story's begun the way the Apostle Paul puts it, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So some people read Jeremiah 31 as saying, well, you know, the old covenant was just about Israel. Now it's with the nations. Uh, that's not the way the story goes. The Israelites are for the nations, and the way the New Testament is told, again, there's not a single Gentile amongst the 12 apostles when the New Covenant's formed. I don't think there's a single Gentile in the upper room praying on the day of Pentecost. God kept his promise of redeeming a group of Israelites who then will minister to the nation, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Jeremiah was mainly trying to get the Jewish side of this in order in his own lifetime. So he's going to see that. But he died probably in Egypt. He died outside the land. So he had a concern for the nations as well. I get a lot of people who think this uh, promise of filling the land was fulfilled in 1948 a few years ago. Exactly. Um, And when we're teaching, we'll have a bunch of those people in our class likely. You really will. And I think it's very important for them to see that What Jeremiah promised, Luke is saying, is being fulfilled right here and now. That story is being told. Yes, this begins the ultimate restoration and renewal. We're on the way to that. We need to not underread the Old Testament and and the Scriptures and see that that's the story they're telling. Enter into that story and then see what 1948 may mean as opposed to reading that back into the Bible. You mentioned Jesus in the upper room saying this is the new covenant in my blood. I guess I just imagine these disciples, they grew up hearing the scroll of Jeremiah read, and for centuries there had been this promise of Jeremiah of this new covenant that was going to be made. And I guess I imagine that those disciples in that upper room that night, they think, is this it? Is this what Jeremiah was talking about? Um, finally, as we teach, 
Jeremiah, especially that section about the new covenant, which I think you mentioned earlier, this is a place to land. For one thing, it really helps people bring the whole of the Bible together to really understand old covenant and then this new covenant. What are some of the key things we need to communicate about the new covenant as Jeremiah described it? And then that new covenant when Jesus says, now this this new covenant is in my blood and then on pentecost we really see it come about yeah it's it's the same it's the same thing it's same promise now i always say to people let's let's read jeremiah here and then let's let's follow along with the apostles and jesus on the night he's betrayed would you in the same in the lesson would you always put those together yes i would this is that that's what luke is saying that's what jesus is saying now then i ask people uh if they really thought that and they seem to the disciples did why are they so bereft after the cross? Well, if they're only reading Jeremiah instead of Jeremiah in concert with Isaiah 53, you could say, New Covenant this is great. They wouldn't be thinking about the cross. They'd just be thinking about the next step in Jeremiah, which is Zion, security, everything turning out right. The glory without the suffering. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. And that's what Jesus said. This is, this is the New Covenant in my blood. He's bringing the Isaiah 53 because Isaiah talks about an everlasting covenant, a covenant of peace, and it's the same covenant as New Covenant. So they really weren't quite prepared, if I read Luke 24 right, Jesus having to explain to him, no, I had to suffer, I had to die. Put the whole Old Testament together and you'll see it. But if you're only reading Jeremiah a certain way, you would not bring that in. So I think that's part of why they were crushed. And I want people to see that the disciples weren't just gutless wonders who ran off when Jesus needed them most. They weren't figuring out how all this was supposed to go. Uh, for all I know, they thought Jesus would somehow get out of this the way he always had before. They weren't thinking about the cross. They just weren't. But later they did. They put the whole thing together. So that's one thing I, I want to do. The other thing I want to say to him is what New Covenant means is it's the last New Covenant, isn't it? We've had lots of New Covenants before. First Covenant's Noah, right? So the one with Abraham's a New Covenant, and then the one with David's a New Covenant, and the one with Israel's a New Covenant. But what what's distinctive here is it's the last New Covenant. This is it. This is the final one. There's no more on the docket. There's nothing else to add. That's what fulfillment means. We're in the last age. So it doesn't mean new as opposed to old. It means all of them come together in this one, and this is full and final. Everything you need to know is in this one. Not in, con- not in distinction to the last one, but including all the other ones. I think a new covenant person needs to know I'm responsible for the whole thing now. Not, well, those poor benighted people in the Old Testament, they just did this, and now they did. we do that, and... This kind of, they failed, now we're succeeding, that kind of nonsense. It's everything has come together, all the sacrifices, the promises to Abraham to bless all the nations, the promise of David of eternal kingdom, the promise uh, to Moses that of a faithful people who walk with God, the promise to Noah that creation will continue. All of them are coming together in that cup the night Jesus died, and they come together every time we share the cup and every time we preach and teach and serve so we're living out of the whole of all the covenants that christ has made possible not pitting one against the other as if we're competing with the hebrew christian in teaching this promised new covenant from jeremiah so you would go to luke and 
hear Jesus saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, would you also bring in some things from the book of Hebrews and in what way? Well, I would say to him is it's none of this is just abstract theology. These books are written to real people. So the book of Hebrews is written to suffering people who are having their land confiscated and this sort of thing. So they're suffering. And they're a unique generation. When they were born, looking for the Messiah was the way to go. Now they've lived long enough to find out the Messiah is here. It's a very unique generation. Can we go back the way it was before? It seems to be safe to go back and be what they were before they knew that Jesus was the Messiah and stand with him. So before they lose more property, before they get jailed one more time, before their kids are put in more peril, almost like the Christians in, in behind the Iron Curtain in the old days, can we go back? The answer is no. You can't go back in time. You can't go back on the story. So because the new covenant, which incorporates all of them, is superior to any one of them singly or without it, you can't go back. So all that's in the past. It's fading. You can't go back. So you can know that this covenant in Christ is something to anchor your life in and suffer for. It's all there is. You must do it, and then you can do it. And not only that, all the people of faith in Hebrews 11, that's what they did. So what I want to do is not just take Hebrews 8, 8 to 12 out as an argumentative point as to what happens in the Old and New Covenant. But once I anchor it in people's lives and in the story, I think I can see better what it's doing. And when you tie it back to Jeremiah, I think the Hebrew people would have said, yeah, the people in the book of Hebrews, they would have said, thanks, He's, he ought to be the patron saint. He suffered the way we are suffering. He, he had the problems we are having. So, yeah, we do want to listen to what he says about it. When we're teaching the book of Jeremiah, we want to make sure, and you have shown us a number of ways already to do this, which is to make sure that we're doing as Jesus instructed us to do, which is that the whole of the Bible is about him. Are there some particular keys to getting to presenting Christ from the book of Jeremiah that maybe haven't come up so far in our conversation? A lot of people don't seem to recognize the following. The Bible's not written to unbelievers, it's written to believers. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10 about the book of Numbers. This was written for our sake, upon whom the end of the age come, Christian believers. So if it tells me to get my ethical act together... I don't then have to somehow squint harder and see where Jesus is in the verse. As a Christian, I have to say, I have to get my act together the same way as a Christian. I read the second half of any of Paul's epistles or the Sermon on the Mount or any number of texts. i got to get my Christian life together. That's what this text is trying to tell me. But there are several key Messianic passages in Jeremiah besides Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 23 comparing the bad kings of his day to the great king that's coming is a marvelous messianic text explicitly helping us know who Christ is. So what I want to say is to a Christian, if by Christ-centered I mean he is the he is the heart and the soul, the reason we exist, the reason we read the Bible, and there are several texts that are explicitly about his coming and his work and activity, yes, if you mean Christ is all is the whole Bible is about Christ in that if I look at a passage that says your unethical behavior is going to cause you to lose everything, Jeremiah 7, 
since that's written to me as a Christian. It's about my ethical life, not about how I figure out how to get saved or how I prove Jesus is Lord. That's for obedience. I'm trying to read the Bible the way Jesus did, for absolute obedience in my life as I serve him. Are there any particular resources on the book of Jeremiah that you would recommend to us, uh, especially those of us who haven't studied Hebrew? Yes, I think every basic Bible teacher should have two or three of the following resources. And these are the kind of things I've had in my life or I've bought for my father who's been a, a Sunday school teacher forever or I recommend to my small group on Monday night. Uh, everybody should have a one-volume commentary on the Bible. I suggest uh, the new Bible commentary, InterVarsity Press. It's going to give you something on every book of the Bible. It's going to give you some basics. Um, if you if you can have a good Bible atlas like the ESV Bible atlas, that's going to have every map you'd ever want to look at in a good history. That's also very, very helpful. The nice thing about it, too, it has a, what would it be, a DVD or CD? I always mix up the two. But you can reproduce all the maps and for your study Hand group. Hand them out. Mm-hmm. Hand them out if you need them. You need a one-volume Bible dictionary so you can look up a word. If I don't, if I don't know what righteousness means uh, or if I don't know where Anathoth is or if I don't know this, I can look it up and in brief find it. Those are just some basics. If you were going to teach Jeremiah longer and you said, I need a little commentary, the Tyndale Old Testament and New Testament commentaries are written to be at a basic level for reasonably intelligent people. It will give you an outline, a structure, and the basics of what's going on in every passage. Most of us need that. It's enough to get you started, make you not look a fool in public, and to have you um, be as knowledgeable as you can be. Make us not to look like a fool in public. We are all after that. <laughs> yes. Let's, let's start with basics because all of us, when we start teaching, we're scared to death. We can fill up the time. Exactly. Then we're scared. Then we go to, over. Then we go over. Then we're scared that we don't have anything relevant to say. And then yeah. we do all these other things. And then about the time we think we know what we're doing, somebody asks to teach something we've never done before. We've got to start all, all over All over again. every mm-hmm. time. And I imagine we might find a good resource in the ESV Study Bible Notes on Jeremiah. I like them, you. yes. I, I, it's, it's the best I could do at the time. And I what hope, do you mean by that? Well, I know I, I've learned more since then. I could probably do better now. Uh, and I say it because I want to encourage people. Look, the first time I preached, uh, there was no way that other than God's call and people's willingness to hear that I had any right to talk. And I was going to try to talk from the Bible. Don't be afraid <clears throat> that if you don't know as much as Nancy Guthrie, you can't begin to teach the Bible. Or if I don't know what's in here, all of us have to give what we've got today. Hopefully, five, ten years from now, we live and we come back to it. We say, you know, I can do. I know more now. Isn't this great? I've learned. Uh, so I'm I'm continuing. To learn, I think I did a good job with the Jeremiah notes. I hope I know more now and could do a better job. I know I can teach Jeremiah better now than I could the first time I tried in about 1981. So be encouraged, everybody. If we wait until we're sure we've got it all down and we'll get everything exactly right, none of us would ever teach. No. When you teach the Old Testament, take the pressure off. If you can say anything vaguely interesting or helpful, most people are amazed. It's So just take the pressure off and go for it. And, you know, listen to the group that you're, that you're teaching and learning 
with you're always going to be challenged to say, how do I help these people in this room at this time? That'll be an ongoing uh, exercise. It's worth doing, and don't give up on it. That's what I want to say to teachers. Well, that's a good word to us as teachers. Um, Why don't we close by just speaking a little bit more directly to us as teachers? Maybe we're considering specifically the book of Jeremiah. Is there any challenge or encouragement you would give to us as we dive into our study to prepare ourselves to teach this book? Yeah, I think you can you can trust first of all the word of God to be to be relevant to the people. You don't have to make it relevant, it will be. Now I know some of us are more interesting than others, but trust the text. You don't have to make it something it's not. It will it will speak to people if we understand it. Second thing I'd say, take a bite-sized amount of text. If you've got to teach chapters 2 to 29, pick the chapter you think best summarizes the whole. And if it's sin, then, yeah, you pick up something like chapter 7 or chapter 26. It's just going to hammer what's gone wrong. You pick a representative passage. Give the people an outline for how it's structured and how it works, how it speaks to our need to repent and be holy people as Christians, and how it invites unbelievers into the family. Well, thank you so much, Dr. House. I have learned a lot in this discussion about the book of Jeremiah, and I'm sure our our listeners have too. Thank you. It's been an honor. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including Bonhoeffer's Seminary Vision by Paul House. If you're preparing to teach through Jeremiah, you might want to get Jeremiah and Lamentation from Sorrow to Hope by Philip Ryken, which is in the Preaching the Word commentary series. And if you're leading a small group studying Jeremiah, you might want to consider using the 12-week study on Jeremiah written by Matthew Harmon in the Knowing the Bible Bible Study Guide series. You can learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.